This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Whales are huge and graceful, and many have migratory lifestyles. Some species, such as the blue whale, are remarkable travelers whose cycles of migration move them from the Arctic waters where they feed to warmer waters where they breed. Because whales are highly vocal, acoustic monitoring is the best way to know where they're located, where they're going, and what perils they might encounter. A new study demonstrates that for the first time, the same undersea fiber optic cables that were developed and installed for cable television can also be used to tune into marine life. This approach can potentially transform our conservation efforts for whales. And it comes none too soon because nearly 50% of great whale species are classified as endangered. And the rapid warming of polar regions poses increasing threats to these beautiful animals with whom we share the oceans of the world. Our guest today is Dr. Leah Buffot at Cornell University. Leah, welcome. Thank you. Leah, I found your study of a new approach to understand the dynamics of whale movements as a really intriguing and important piece of research, you know, especially in this time of shifts to a hotter, drier climate. But before we start talking about your paper, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. I know that your academic training is in acoustic engineering, and you got that in France, and recently you've been a postdoc at Cornell University. Um, can you tell us your other institutional affiliations? Yes, of course. Um, so yes, as, as you were saying, I did my PhD in France uh, at the Naval Academy. And after that, I uh, did my research as a postdoc at NTNU, which is a Norwegian university that is located in Trondheim, and which is the location where I did most of the work uh, that is associated with the publication. And, and where did you go for your field work? I understand you were working mainly in the fjords of Norway. Could you describe that landscape for our listeners and, and kind of make it come alive? What did you see? What did you hear there? So that might actually be a little intriguing, but we didn't do field work for that study. So, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> the way it plays it played out was that there was this fiber optic cable that was connected to land in Svalbard, and some of the engineers that are uh, part of the um, interrogator, which is the instrument that we've been using. Um, some of the engineer went to Svalbard and connected our piece of equipment to the fiber optic cable and came back to Norway, to mainland Norway. And we were receiving data almost in, in very close to real time. And so we've been looking at only the data. Yeah, so I was completely blind during that study and I was only listening and studying the acoustics that we were getting and the sounds that we were getting. I see. Well, I guess I'll have to shift my vision of you out there amongst the icebergs, but but that's part of science too, isn't it? Being able to understand the data that, that are collected for us in a way. But going back to that environment in Norway, I was wondering if you could describe how that environment might be changing in recent decades. What are the, the current environmental and climatic changes that might be affecting the waters and the land of the Arctic? Of course. So because of, well, global climate change, we've been seeing what we call an Atlantification of polar region, and especially it's it's rapidly changing in Svalbard. What this means is that a lot of the ice uh, has been melting and it's not reforming as it used to. 
And what it means for a lot of marine mammal species is that they are shifting polewards, so toward the poles, towards their preferred source of food, for example, and so toward their preferred temperature. In Svalbard, until a few years ago, this was not a place where, pe where people were used to see baleen whales as we were studying all year round, but there are more and more studies that are reporting sightings or acoustic recording of them close to those polar regions almost all year, all year round now. You know, I often think that, um, or people I think, think think of doing science as kind of a solitary activity in the laboratory and in a field site, but much of current science is carried out collaboratively. And I noted that your paper was co-written by 11 co-authors at four institutions in three countries. And so I'm wondering how in goodness names did you assemble your team and, and what different disciplines and approaches did they represent? So this was an extraordinary journey, and I was very lucky to be brought on this team by Martin Lendre, which is the head of the Center for Geophysical Forecasting at the Norwegian University at NTNU. And he is a geophysicist, but that has been very interested in monitoring marine mammals in general to make sure that the geophysical applications, such as looking for oil and gas, are as safe as we can for marine mammals. And so he had this vision of bringing together a lot of different people from different backgrounds, which goes from, I would consider myself now as a marine bioacoustician, but like with a very a background in underwater acoustics and dealing with data, which we call signal processing. We had colleagues that were really biologists, marine biologists. Uh, we had geophysicists. We have had people that were more into looking at earthquakes. We had people that were a little more oceanographers. And so this entire team spent a lot of time thinking, designing that experiment, and then discussing together how we can extract information from that data that we were getting. Well, it sounds like a remarkable thing. I can, I'm can. i just trying to picture all these meetings and conferences and workshops you must have gotten together on with, with people from these remarkably different disciplines. But I was wondering if you could describe in a very basic way the what you call the Distributed Acoustic Sensing System, or DAS. How does that work? So Distributed Acoustic Sensing, or DAS, is converting the fiber optic cable into a listening array. And the way it is doing that is that we're going on the field on the field to just plug a piece of equipment that we called a nitrogator. So we plug it on the one end of the fiber optic cable that is on land. And so what this interrogator is doing is that it is sending light pulses into the fiber. Within the fiber, there are small impurities that are due to the way we are making them um, that are present. And so when there is a light pulse that is sent within the fiber, a little portion of the light will be coming back towards the interrogator, towards our instrument, due to those impurities. It's all some kind of a reflection. And now when we're talking about a fiber that is lying at the bottom of the ocean, this fiber will be moved by acoustic pressure, for example, the pressure that is related to sound that are happening in the ocean. And the sound is going to apply some a constraint on the fiber, which is going to make those little impurities move. 
and which is the movement that we're receiving. And at back at the interrogator, what we actually measure is time difference of arrivals between light pulses. Light pulses will be slower if we are actually elongating the fiber optic cable a little bit. So this is what we're measuring and we're converting that into sound. Wow, that is incredible. That I no wonder your article got so much attention. It's just, that is an amazing development. And I'm wondering about um, what are the advantages of your system of DAS over the traditional system of, of what was used before, these hydrophones that people used in the past? In one of your interviews, you likened the advent of DAS and how it's changed our capacity to understand whales to satellite imagery and how that's changed our way of understanding sort of large scale earth, earth processes like land use change. Talk about that a little bit, about the advantage of DAS over previous techniques. Yeah, so as you rightfully said in the introduction, whales are soniferous animals. They make a lot of sounds for communication. And so until now, we have been using hydrophones to record them. Hydrophones are underwater microphones. And one of the problems that we have is that they're fairly expensive to deploy because usually what we have to do when we want to record animals is that we have to get a ship, a crew, the instruments and go out there to deploy them, which is always, it's sensitive to the weather, to the light condition, to the sea state, uh, can be difficult in very remote areas where so, some of the large baleen whales are. And usually we deploy um the, our hydrophones and then we have to go get them back when we're done recording they're autonomous for a few months they stay there for for some months even sometime up to a year but we still have to go back to get the recordings and to get all of our data so as you can imagine this is a constraining process and i i think this is one of the reasons that today our oceans are not um, equally sampled, they're undersampled, and the migration routes of animals such as baleen whales are undersampled. And so what DAS is bringing on the table is that first, we can connect our interrogator measuring tool from land. So we might not need to go at sea as much as before using that type of technology. Additionally, in the study that we published, uh, we were able to record acoustic data over 120 kilometers from a coastal fjord area up to the, to the open ocean. And so this type of coverage is incredible. In, and I believe that we haven't been able to have such type of coverage with single hydrophone in, in these locations. I also learned from your paper that you could distinguish between different kinds of calls, what you call the stereotype calls by male blue whales, and also what you term V calls, which are vocalizations that can be made by males, females, and calves. And could you indicate what those calls suggest from a biological standpoint? In the field of bioacoustics, we're studying sounds made by animals. And when it's the when we're looking at whales such as blue whales, they're making those various types of sounds. So far, there is still a little bit of mystery around the reason for them to produce those sounds, 
what we know, as you were uh, saying, is that the blue whale male is making those long, very stereotyped signals. We think that might be for purposes of reproduction, maybe, but we're not completely sure. This is one of the assumptions. And regarding the more social, less stereotyped signals that are made by, as we were saying, male, females, and calves, we've seen, we actually recorded blue whale uh, making those signals in on feeding grounds. So we think this might be a little more social and maybe associated with the action of feeding. I also understand from reading your paper that one huge challenge was was just simply managing the gigantic data sets that that your method has generated, um, but also that you were attempting to find and identify signals that you didn't actually know what they looked like since this technology is just so new. And so now that you've worked with the data, what are you are you doing things or taking making activities that will make it easier for other researchers to both handle and to understand these data? Yes, that's part of my current goals. So processing, if to give an order of perspective, we're talking about thousands of sensing unit, thousands of hydrophone-like data. And of course, if you have a month of data, but you're duplicating that over more than thousands of times, it's hours and hours and hours of recording. And so the way we started to look at that data, because we didn't, as you were saying, we didn't know exactly what to expect, how that system would record whale sounds, if it would actually be similar to what we're used to on hydrophones, we had a strategy which was to extract the data from a few locations and look at it as if it was a normal hydrophone. Now, using that maybe a little rustic approach, uh, we were able to identify signals that compared to the literature match pretty well with what we knew were whale, baleen whale signals and what we knew they were producing in the area. So we could actually say, after a little bit more digging, we could actually say with certitude, yes, this is a blue whale. We're recording blue whales. So now uh, looking towards the future, um, we made this very good data set that can help us build better ways of dealing with all of that data and to process it faster and yes, so that it can become easier for other people to use similar type of data. Fantastic. So it's sort of like people now won't have to reinvent the alphabet. They can actually use the alphabet that you have developed to put together words and phrases and paragraphs and stories, I guess, in the future. Yes, that's the long-term goal. This will take a bit of time to get there. Of course it will. Of course it will. In addition to whales, I am wondering what sorts of other sounds can can you hear or or record, I guess, and translate into sound with this system? I and mean, what do you hear? Ships going by, or can you hear submarines going by? Tell us, tell us what other kinds of sounds you might be able to detect. So, from our study, we saw that we could record lots of different types of sounds. We heard ships passing by. Um, they're in the same frequency range. They have the, a similar pitch to whales. So we could hear them. 
we could also record earthquakes, which is in line with other studies that were before us that were using the same type of system that were using DAS um, to listen to the ocean. They were able to hear earthquakes and so did we. We were also able, and this one to me is somehow incredible, we were able to listen to storms that were happening on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. So can you imagine we were situated in Svalbard, the small archipelago at the doorstep of the Arctic, and we were listening to storms that were happening in the Caribbeans. Wow, that is incredible. Yes. <laughs> Well, I just love the fact that you're sitting up there in the Arctic and then listening to what's going on in the Caribbean in terms of storms. That's, yes. that's really fantastic. Yes. Um, I'd like to shift the conversation a bit and, and talk about sort of the bigger picture, the environmental picture of the Arctic. And in your paper, you stated that warming from climate change is happening two to three times more quickly uh, than in other places around the world, and that both animal and human use of the area is changing pretty much as fast as the ice, ice melts. And so I'm wondering, since blue whales, for example, some of the whales that occupy the Arctic are migratory and only spend some of their time in the Arctic, does this rapid warming affect them? Um, are they shifting their locations? How are they adjusting to what all of us are experiencing here on our planet? This is part of the research that we want to do and we're trying to do is to understand how climate, climate change is affecting various species and ecosystems in general. And what we see in evidence show that, yes, we see that this upward shifting and that whales are uh, staying in the Arctic much longer than they used to. In terms of how does that affect them more than just they're staying there longer, I don't think we know yet. Or at least I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that sounds like an area that uh, I think younger or more scientists are probably going to be tackling in the future, and your tool may help them uh, address that. Um, I'm, I was also intrigued with this idea of sort of the indirect effects of climate change. Um, we are understanding that the disappearing ice cover actually opens up the Arctic to increase shipping and fishing and other activities like tourism. And I'm wondering if those indirect forces of climate change could affect these whales. Just more ships, I guess, might be uh, plying the waters of the Arctic than, than were before, and if that might be a, a human impact on these populations. Yes, this is a one of my concern. Uh, in terms of, we're looking at species that are vulnerable, or to, to say the least, that are vulnerable and that are changing their habits and the way they use their um, habitat. And at the same time, our use as human is changing extremely rapidly. And yes, um, with the loss of ice cover, it opens the door to a lot of human activities. Um, one that I think, especially for the location that we're looking at, might have a potential big impact would be the opening of a cross-Arctic shipping lane. And and we we want to be able to monitor the current status of those whales at these locations to see if there is really an impact and to be able to inform policymakers of potential change. Well, that actually leads to my next question, which is 
you know, it seems that your work is not only relevant to academic researchers who are trying to understand you know, the basic biology of these marine creatures, but, but will have an impact on many different stakeholders. And so I'm wondering how you anticipate getting this information to, say, working fishing boats or cargo ships or to people who are making policy decisions that concern the use of marine resources. Is that something that you see as your work or do you think that's something that you could funnel your research to other people who communicate? How do you talk about that communication to the people who might actually sort of have a more direct effect on these whales? Mm -hmm. So I would consider myself not as an ecologist, um, but I my goal is to work more with ecologists that do have direct connection with either policymakers. Our role, I believe, as especially as acousticians right now, is to give indicators that are unbiased. This is when we're saying um, noise levels are raising of, I don't know, 3 dB. This is an unbiased measurement. I believe the work of the conservationist is to take this into and lead it towards an action. So, so yes, it is part of our work to get those numbers and give them to the people that can do something with them. No, that to me is just an incredibly important link. And I'm really pleased to, delighted really to hear you say, you know, to know that 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 connection exists and that you as a researcher, a basic researcher, have a position in that chain of communication from pure science to application to societal problems. I'd like to shift a little bit again and talk about you and your own career. I'm sure that many of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, are thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what a great job Leah has. How can I do what she's doing? And, and I'm wondering, based on your own progress through your own academic career as you're launching yourself, I was wondering if you have any advice or guidance for the folks who might be thinking about a career that would involve the sort of combination of invention and innovation and data analysis and the work that you do? Well, uh, <laughs> I would go for follow your dreams and never listen when people tell you you can't do it. <laughs> um, I like when I started, I as a high schooler, I was passionate about music and simultaneously, I really, really loved physics. And one day someone brought me a magazine that was um, scientific magazine and it's like look at this this is a field that is called acoustics and to me that was a revelation I was like this is what I want to do oh my gosh that's fantastic Leah that is so interesting and and since then I was just I started to be fascinated by that by that field and I started learning about it and initially it had nothing to do with what was going on underwater and this came a little later. I come from the coast in France, and I've always grown by the water, close to the water, often in the water as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and at, at some point, there was like this kind of environmental, biological awakening on one side, and on the other side, this acoustic side. And I thought, well... I've read that the underwater world is far from the silent world that has been described like some decades ago. Actually, animals are using sounds to communicate. That's probably the realm of acoustics. So I started d digging into that and and that was it. Like that was what I wanted to do. And 
those towers were not necessarily aligned for me to be doing that. And it took a lot of rapid turns to, to be able yes. to get there. But little by little, with perseverance, um, yeah, it worked out. <laughs> I love that connection between music and physics that then sort of combined and con I don't know, it, there was sort of a confluence in a way, yes. I guess, of your, yes. of your too deep interest into something that has been really useful, really important. And um, and uh, to me, it's very inspiring that you were able to do that. Thank you. Well, Leah, I want to thank you so much um, for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. I really enjoyed learning from your perspectives. And I just want you and your team to know that we at Utah Public Radio wish you the very best for the work of you and your colleagues in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. I, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.